Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Seven years ago, I was asked to launch a groundbreaking book by Annabelle Crabb called The Wife Drought. Slammed by her career and motherhood, the now famous author spoke at the launch with her youngest daughter clinging to her leg while her partner wrangled the other two. Annabelle argued women need wives and men need lives. But what about the mothers who rise to the top of their profession and don't have a partner? Our guest today is Anna Maria Arabia, a neuroscientist, former policy advisor to Bill Shorten and general manager of Questacom. Today, she's the CEO of the Australian Academy of Science, an independent organisation providing authoritative scientific advice. She's led reform in science policy matters and addressed gender equity in her field. Please welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series, Anna Maria Arabia. Thanks so much for having me, Helen. That is such a beautiful name. It's just got, it's just, it's melodic. Thank you. I admit, Helen, I used to have friends in primary school who would sing my name, so I think they felt it was melodic too. Um, It's confused many people over the course of my life. It's of Italian origin, actually. And if it's said in Italian, it does sound Italian, and the Maria Arabia, but um, yeah. There we are. It is beautiful. And I assume they sang it out of joy, not not to tease you. No, no, it was a positive experience. It was out of joy. Can we start with a little bit of background on your career path? You have a exemplary record in science. Just give us a little bit of an overview of your background. I trained as a scientist, particularly in the area of neuroscience. And I was drawn to it because it was a field where you could look at things and discover things that no one in the world had ever seen or discovered. Uh, So I found that really attractive and I spent many years in medical research in the field of neuroscience, but also found that I was the person who was drawn to the broader parameters around science. How is it funded? Why do scientists have to compete for their money every three years? How does it work? Um, I was always the person who was organising the international collaboration in the laboratory rather than doing the actual research while I was trying to do both. And my interests were broad and that was very clear to me. And whilst early on I felt that I was therefore, you know, not suited to my job or not capable, actually my interests were broad. And when I gave myself permission to explore some of those interests, I think that's really when I was able to take my science and use it in the many different career paths and uh, jobs that I've had since. I assume it was reasonably unusual at that time in Australia to be pursuing a scientific career for a young woman. I think at the early stages of doing a, you know, PhD research and a research both in Australia and abroad as I did, that 
wasn't so unusual. And indeed, even to this day, uh, the number of women who undertake um, scientific degrees and research uh, are equal, if not more, than men. So that wasn't the unusual bit. It's once you get beyond those early phases of a career in research that you're less likely to see role models who are women. And all of your supervisors, the director of the institute I was doing my research in, everybody I saw around me was a man. So that was unusual. But certainly there were other students, PhD students and others who were of all genders. I'll come back to what it's like and what you learned from working around all men because most of the listeners to this podcast are young women embarking on careers in a range of industries and come up against that quite often. But I really wanted to concentrate today on your success whilst juggling motherhood, because that is a constant pressure for women to this day. I I, I strike it all the time. Tell me, you decided to go alone to be a mum. Tell us a little bit about the circumstances around that and uh, how unusual that was that time? It was very clear to me at a very young age that I wanted to have children. And so in my mind, perhaps unusually, I remember actively thinking when I was about 30, that if I wasn't going to have a child in a healthy relationship, I would be prepared to do it alone. And I don't know why I was thinking about that at the age of 30. It was hardly the end of the biological clock. But it was something that I felt very strongly about. And so I set myself this kind of internal silent deadline of 38. If by 38 that relationship wasn't there, um, I would go alone. And three days after my 38th birthday, my ex-partner and myself mutually ended a relationship. And I kind of looked at myself in the mirror and said, oh, well, you're 38 now, what are you going to do? And I think I'd felt so committed to this for such a long time that it wasn't a particularly difficult decision to make. The decision was, do you not want to have children or do you want to have children on your own? And for me, that wasn't even a decision point. So I gave myself six months to get my head together after this relatively longish relationship had ended and to start doing the research I needed to understand sperm donation, to understand what going it alone really meant rather than just a thorn in my head. And then I read Virginia Housinger's book, Wonder Woman, The Myth of Having It All. And I went from, oh, no, I don't have six months to wait here to hurry up and get your skates on. What a ridiculous proposition to sit around crying about this. So I I got really practical and I reached out to a friend to be a potential sperm donor who said no um, and then reached out to a second person who said yes. And so started this journey of... um, there's, there's a name given to people like me, we're choice mums. I don't think it's a great label. You know, we, we all make choices. <laughs> anyway, uh, starting this journey of being a choice mum where I decided to go alone. Um, and, it, you know, it did weigh on my mind uh, what that would mean for my career, what that would mean um, financially. Was I financially secure and robust enough to be able to do that? And so all those things, I I guess I spent some time preparing uh, for this journey. And I've got to say, it's been a a tremendously empowering journey rather than a difficult one. Um, I don't want your listeners to think there haven't been challenges. There have been. Many are unique. 
I have utmost respect for single parents who have to uh, share the load with um, former partners or negotiate that journey because I think that does add a level of complexity. But in many ways, I was able to shape this and do it my way. And that's what I tried to do. Uh, so I was able to work towards having the financial means to do this. I was able to work towards um, just backing myself, I guess, and trusting myself that in whatever job I would take, my son and I would do this as a team and I would shape that job if it wasn't already shaped in a way that would enable my ability to participate in it. Uh, so sorry, you did ask earlier if that was unusual. It was. I remember telling people and they thought, goodness, you're incredibly courageous and um, are you sure you want to do this and aren't you going to ruin your career? My own mum, bless her, she's not with us anymore, but um, of, you know, Italian origin was mortified as to what she would possibly tell our entire family and friend network around her daughter having a child by herself. Um, but that lasted until my child was born and then it was just such a non non issue um, because the love that comes with the birth of any child, I think, uh, is uh, overrides any of that. So there was some cultural pressures or uh, differences of views. There were friends who uh, thought that I would be throwing my career and my ambitions out the window. But then there were a bunch of people who said, "Good on you, do this, you know, back yourself," and were equally as supportive. I have a, a friend who did exactly the same thing, and her. Parents had exactly the same reaction um, right up until the moment the baby was born. I want to um, talk really about how you then went on to navigate a incredibly impressive career as a single mum. I don't think I let it be an issue in my mind. Uh, so I was keen to spend time with Alessandro and I took a year of maternity leave. Um, I was able to, that was part of being financially able to do that. I felt really privileged to be able to take that time and to choose when I wanted to go back to work. Um, had I been forced back to work at six months, I would have been devastated. Um, but by 11 months, I was ready to get back there. I, was, it was, I needed to blend my professional life and my personal life. I was able to uh, continue first in a part-time capacity and then slowly returning to full-time work to pursue what I wanted to do. So at the time, I was actually working for Bill Shorten when he was the leader of the opposition. And most people uh, would say that uh, those jobs are certainly not part-time jobs and certainly require you to be available 24-7. Um, I think I was in part lucky, but I also made some good choices. Bill was offered a fantastic environment in his office and was the first time I ever saw in politics um, a parliamentarian who was willing to look at part-time arrangements, job-sharing arrangements, uh, to look at ways that we could make this work, uh, to make my contribution valued. I didn't have to be on the road for every last inter interstate trip. Was it really necessary? So there were some really honest questions asked. And yet I had the freedom to do that if I did want to do that and put in place arrangements to either bring my son with me or um, have a nanny or a babysitter care for him. So I, I guess I fostered an environment that allowed that flexibility. I won't say I demanded it because I never needed to demand it, but I think I was prepared to. I was prepared to say, do you know what, for us to have a diverse workforce and to have the best contribution and all of the available talent in Australia contributing to what was driving us at the time, I, I, I felt that I needed to be able to balance that and, and, and push for that. Again, I was pushing against an open door. And I'd say the same of 
than every other step in my career. So um, following Bill's office, I uh, applied for the job I'm in now, which is the Chief Executive of the Australian Academy of Science. And it was a full-time position. Um, I was working three days a week and was going to go to four days the following year, uh, but made the decision that I would take the leap back to full-time for this role and to move to Canberra. Uh, from Melbourne, where my support system was. Uh, I think as a scientist, I'm resourceful and I can problem solve. So I'm often able to pull it, a rabbit out of a hat and sort out the day to day. But I'd say that of many women. Um, I say that of many parents. Uh, so I think I've been able to forge a career through that and with Alessandro. The only other thing I would add to that is various times in this current role, you know, there's been a babysitter failure and at 5.25 the babysitter calls and says, I'm not available for, to come at 5.30 and I, I'm supposed to be standing in front of 300 people to deliver a speech uh, at 6pm. And I've literally picked up my son and said, all right, you're coming with me. And two things happen almost without fail on those occasions, Helen. And that is he sees me as a professional and not just as mum. So now he thinks that whenever he sees a lectern, I'm going to be speaking. He just thinks that wherever he sees it, you know, whether it's a, an altar or a lectern or whatever, he just thinks I'm speaking there. Um, but somebody in the audience writes to me afterwards and says, thank you for modelling what real life looks like. And it's true, I never expected that, but it's it's normalising life. It's, it's not unusual. We don't need to compartmentalise our personal and private lives in ways that make them dysfunctional. As a policy wonk um, and a follower of politics, single mums have been at the end of the line. They've been derided, denied. It's all their fault. They don't deserve extra payments. Do you feel like that's changing, that we're actually getting to a point in this country where we back single mums, or am I just being a bit idealistic here? Hand on heart, I don't think it is changing. I think when we have just some basic acknowledgement of uh, the value of free or affordable childcare, we would be creating an environment that is equitable for everybody. So it becomes insignificant, whether you're a single mum or you know, a three-person, a three-parent family or whatever that construction might be, um, everybody has an opportunity to participate in the economy and in their own self-development or whatever, whatever choices they might want to make are supported. Um, so I think there's some very basic social policies that we really haven't got to as a nation and we haven't made much headway in. Um, it's good for our economy, it's good for women, it's good for men, it's good for everybody. Now, there are a lot of women listening to this who might have partners but are kind of victims of the wife drought, as Annabelle Crabb would say. They mm. um, have partners who aren't as involved in the the raising of a family. What advice? You look like you make being a high-flying single mom really easy. Tell us, do you have any advice around how to juggle the two the two parts of your life. Annabelle's um, wife drought obviously nailed it. Um, the burden of responsibility falls disproportionately to women. Um, the mental burden falls disproportionately to women. I've not had a partner to be able to pick things up. And to be honest, not even the family support in Canberra. So in some ways, when you're forced to create avenues to enable things, you do. I think I've probably fast-tracked putting some of those in place and I've never experienced it as somebody's letting me down. It's my problem, my solution, 
it's actually quite empowering so that the burden falls 100% on me. That That's difficult. But so does the option and the way I navigate that. So there is something quite empowering about that. But it's a constant juggle. It is for, for everyone. So whether there are two working people or one working partner um, and whether the woman in that partnership is working or not, there is that mental load. There is lots to juggle. What are the tips there? I think it was once said to me, you can do it all, just not at once. Prioritise, back yourself, be the change you want to see in the world. It's something that a very close friend to me often repeats and it's so true. I I now have an opportunity to shape an organisation with a culture and with policies that enable people um, who I'd like to think would enable others like me to participate, uh, that offer them flexibility, that back their skills, that give them the confidence to put their best foot forward. I guess I've chosen those environments, sometimes deliberately, uh, sometimes I think I've been lucky, but I've chosen those environments to um, pursue a career in and get into a position where I'm able to shape it myself. It's a constant juggle. There's not a single Sunday where I don't sit there and think, my goodness, what does this week look like? Who's going to be the babysitter in the morning? Who's going to, while I go to that breakfast event, I'd like to get some exercise in, so how am I going to do that? Uh, You know, there's an event in the evening. The pandemic was this major release in terms of not being able to go to all these places and the interstate and international travel disappeared too. Um, but it's a constant mental burden and it's it's just part of raising a child. Uh, the other thing I do try to do is be quite clear with my, my boss, for example, um, the president of the academy, what I need to be able to do my, my work. So um, it's really important for me to pick up my son after school at after school care, so I'm talking at about 5, 5.30, and to spend time with him until he goes to bed at about 8, 8.30, I'm very happy to log on and do some work after then. But where at all possible, if I can keep that free, I try to, I try to protect that. My only other hint and tip, I guess, is what keeps me sane and able to be, I think, a better mum and a better professional is exercise. I'm um, really disciplined about exercising daily and I carve that out. So I get a babysitter in the morning so I can go to the gym for an hour and I know I'm a better mum as a result. I know I'm a better professional as a result. Of course, there are some days it doesn't happen, but it's the exception. So if it happens, you know, I'll end up exercising five days a week instead of seven, but it's not, oops, I've skipped three weeks. And that's my time. It's my time to regroup, re-energise, rethink, and it helps me be a better mum. So if I'm going for a job and I'm a single mother, would you recommend that I explain that to my potential employer up front, that, that I need flexible work hours, or, or should I leave that for later? Um, I, I would leave that for later. Unfortunately, I think we still live in an, in an environment where some employers might uh, develop a bias around information like that. That does not mean that you shouldn't bring your whole and authentic self to work. Um, But if you are selected as a successful candidate and you're then in a position to negotiate, and often at interview um, there are opportunities to ask broadly around the culture, what the culture's like in an organisation or do they value or enable flexible, um, have a flexible work environment, I'd certainly recommend those questions so you immediately get a sense if this is a, a 
person, place, organisation you want to work for. Um, so it helps you choose. I mean, an interview is a two-way process, right? They're choosing you, but you're choosing them as well. Uh, so I would certainly ask that. But if you then offered the job, um, I would raise it at that point. And it needn't be framed in a, I can't do this job unless I X, Y and Z. But as a, as a genuine desire to have flexibility and, you know, a commitment to achieving whatever that job requires in the way you're able to contribute. Um, so I would leave that as a secondary discussion, but ask those questions at interview. Did you ever find any resistance to the need to work flexibly? Uh, no, not in my... my. I expected there to be resistance in politics because it was unheard of that anyone would be part-time or job-sharing in politics and actually had off to Bill Shorten, who um, really thought this was quite normal. Of course I should, and he felt he should model the, the, the nation he wanted to create effectively. Um, so I expected there to be obstacles in politics, but there weren't. Uh, certainly in the other roles, no, there was enough flexibility there for me to to operate well. Can I ask you another question about your decision to have a child alone? Do you think it's still the case in Australia that women feel under pressure to tick the box of having a child or mm. tick the box of having a partner that they can have a child with? Yes, I think that pressure still exists in Australia and there is still this... Um, myth really that somehow life happens in this chronological order. You meet the right person, you're absolutely sure that they're the right person, you marry or you partner in some formal way, then you have children and there's this kind of chronology of, of things that happen. And it's this kind of fairy tale that I think most women are sold from a very, very young age. And of course, there are many who don't buy into that and who question that at every point. But there are others who there's no doubt do feel as though there is pressure for them to be all those things and perhaps don't take some time to step back and ask, what do I want? What do I want for me? Uh, would I be okay if I didn't have children? Is this a decision for me or is this a decision because it's expected of me? I want to talk about you as a leader. This is a leadership podcast. And thank you for sharing that personal story because I know how valuable that information is um, to women who are trying to do the juggle and looking at your career. What sort of leader do you would you describe yourself as? Inclusive. I think I've got a facilitatory style. I like to enable people or facilitate their their participation and their contribution. I like to surround myself with people who have who have skills that I don't. So I spend a lot of time, I guess, handpicking my senior leadership team um, and then give them a fair bit of autonomy. So I feel I, I make myself available, give them direction and make myself available uh, to them. Always, always offer them whatever support they need in terms of any professional development. I feel really strongly about people leaving my organisation more skilled, more confident and more able than when they come in. So it's always bittersweet to lose good staff, but... Um, it's also a compliment. I like to think that some of the skills we've nurtured at the Academy of Science are now, you know, sprinkled across our um, our society and are doing good in different areas. So I like to bring people around a vision and share that vision and that enthusiasm and then let them make their contribution, bringing their skills. And it usually works. Uh, it also means success as many authors um, and we can celebrate together. One of the things I find interesting about your career is that you transition from working for a senior federal politician into a public service role, effectively. 
And there are often a lot of challenges around having a political affiliation with taking on a plum role like you have. You seem to have navigated the political landscape really well. Tell me how you've done that and why you think you've pulled it off. It hasn't been without its challenges. Um, the Academy is an independent organisation, so we work really closely with government. And certainly our independence and the fact that we are apolitical is paramount in all that we do. Um, under no circumstance should I be or anyone in my organisation be working with any minister of any political persuasion and be anything other than professional and scientific. So firstly, I leave any of my politics at the front door when I walk in, just as a general principle, as as a professional. Um, but the reality is, Helen, and I think I think you know this. Um, you can work for a parliamentarian, and it can be of a particular political party. But in that experience, you actually learn how the parliament works, and it is such invaluable knowledge for any organisation to have. I remember at my job interview, I had anticipated that they may have been concerned about this and that if I would be seen as too one-sided. So I did two things. Um, I reassured them verbally with what I've just told you, the fact that I know how to navigate the parliament and that is a really important skill set and that that's a skill set the academy needed. But the second thing I did was I proved that by asking a parliamentarian on the other side of politics, in this case, it was in the Liberal Party, it was the former science minister, to be my referee. And I had worked with her. I had worked with her extensively. Uh, she knew that. She backed my ability um, and she was happy to be a referee. Um, and so I think I neutralised that issue. So that was to get in the door. But it was a real concern. Once in there, to be honest, it's only been really extreme media commentators, those that sit at the fringes, who have a go, oh, you must say this because you used to work for, or you must do. Um, and they, they give it a red hot go, but honestly, you don't, you don't engage, you don't give them oxygen, and the facts speak for themselves. Let's talk about science because I know how passionate you are about this area. If you were Prime Minister for the day and you could do anything with science policy, what would you do? So I know that our nation needs a major boost in productivity and there are reams of documents and reports from the Productivity Commission and others that show one of the best ways to stimulate productivity is to stimulate the knowledge economy. I know that in Australia we hope for and aspire to have high-value, high-paying jobs, clean jobs, and that we all as humans want better for our children and we've had for ourselves. So they're better jobs, cleaner jobs, easier jobs. So, so given that condition, given that societal condition and given that economic condition, if I were Prime Minister for a day, I would set about bringing some coherence and structure to the science and research and knowledge generation system. If we called it knowledge generation, maybe we'd get more traction, I'm not sure. But you know, this kind of knowledge generation capacity that we have within our people and that is built into our economy and leverage that. We've got the smarts in Australia. There is no doubt in my mind, but we've got 
202 science programs across 13 portfolios. We haven't had a science minister for longer than a year in a very long time. We don't have a central point around which there is some coordination around our research effort and an acknowledgement of what it can do for our economy, even though it's well documented. So I would set about putting in place the structures to connect and coordinate science and research programs and policies across our economy to leverage it in a way that would very clearly show the benefit for all. Thank you for sharing that. I will just go back to what you started this interview talking about, and that was coming through in a male-dominated industry and science being that. I'm interested to know how you navigated that space, what skills did you need to hone um, when you were in that all-mile environment? And what advice you have to women who are in those in that same place now? Yeah, my main advice is be prepared and back yourself. Perhaps I, I have an advantage coming from a background in science and so I'm scientifically trained and my brain thinks that way. Uh, but I base a lot of what I do on evidence. I need to be able to back what I do with evidence. So When I can back myself, I feel I can go forward confidently. And in male-dominated environments, which I've worked in my entire life, so not just in science, absolutely the case in politics, not so much um, at the Academy of Science, but certainly the broader scientific network I I deal with is absolutely male-dominated. Credibility is earned in that space where you can back yourself and you can speak with credibility and and with evidence. Now, you don't present everything as evidence, you know, you, you try and speak like a normal person, um, but to be able to, to back yourself. I, I have memories of working in political offices. Uh, I was the infrastructure advisor uh, way back when the infrastructure portfolio was first invented, when Anthony Albanese became the infrastructure minister in 2009, I was his infrastructure advisor. And I remember meeting this whole cohort of new people and there were infrastructure financiers, there were uh, the construction industry, um, you name it, everything that's required in infrastructure to make it tick. And 99% of that cohort of people were men. So boardroom by boardroom, I was frequently the only woman there. And what I often found is that People would presume you didn't know anything. And, you know, you're a woman, you don't know, you're a woman in infrastructure. I don't know what the assumption was, but they presumed you didn't know anything. And so they'd put things to you with this extraordinary confidence as though because it was said, it must be real. And I would challenge that and in a, in a very polite way, like, could you tell me more? Can you help me understand, um, you know, is there any evidence around that? Or, you know, I'd kind of dig a little further and... Eight times out of 10, there was nothing below that statement. There wasn't a lot there. And so that that desire to listen, to ask questions, to be prepared, to be prepared to back myself with um, evidence or whatever I was saying was, was robust, um, meant that I earned their respect. And so the gender difference disappeared. It literally washed away. And by and the end of that period, my relationship with that entire sector was really, really strong and positive and productive and we respected each other. There wasn't a gender element to it at all. So I think I've applied that in all that I do. So speaking with, um, you know, a range of people in the STEM sector who are far more distinguished scientists than I ever was or ever will be to try and um, adopt or, 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 or garner a mutual respect uh, based on our respective competencies and what we can bring and the value we can add by listening, by 
seeking their advice but offering mine has been a way that I've been able to navigate many of those environments. Just being the smartest woman in the room, the smartest person in the room, is that the answer? (laughs) No, I don't know that I ever (laughs) was that. I never felt I was. (laughs) And advice for anyone listening today? Um, It doesn't sound like a lot has changed anecdotally from when you were in those spaces to to now. Do you have any advice for anyone? I'm thinking particularly of, you know, women who are in mining and those sorts of industries. So, that would be a similar experience. Yes, it is. And we hear about it all the time. We hear it particularly amongst our early and mid-career researchers, whether they're working in research laboratories out on the field as engineers, that they face significant barriers. Um, it is difficult for them to get ahead and there is an absence of role models. It is changing. The dial is shifting. We do have more women in senior leadership roles in the STEM sector, uh, but we have a long way to go. I do feel though, um, we're pushing against an open door a little bit more. So I was at Science and Technology Australia in 2009 and a report was released about the differences, uh, the gender differences in the different levels of seniority in science. And they were as bad as they were 15 years prior. The data showed that nothing had changed. We have since had, I think, a genuine um, attempt at improving policies within the sector, um, improving policies within universities, medical research institutes, publicly funded research agencies, um, and they're working. They do take time, they're working. It doesn't mean we, we, we stop. A lot of time and energy and money has been put towards uh, removing barriers for gender inequity uh, or, or, or stopping gender inequity. I think we need to go well beyond that now. We need to look at diversity in all of its dimensions. We have to look at intersectionality and how those different forms of diversity impact individuals. I think it's time we take the next step and have a very sophisticated approach around that. Uh, So we've certainly seen some some change in the science sector, um, but way more to go. You had one child. Do you regret not having the other three? I tried for three years to have a second. That is a little known fact. Um, Many of my colleagues, if they do their sums, I'll figure out that that was an early part of my current job. Um, Unusually, um, Alessandra was a first round IVF success. I was very lucky. Um, The second one was not to be. uh, So there were three years um, unsuccessful trying. That was um, difficult physically difficult. Um, The toll that IVF has on your body cumulatively, it does add up and it it is um, impactful. It was very, very difficult. I decided to end that journey when one day um, I would often at the end of a cycle have a hormone um, kind of let down, come down. And at that time, my back would get really, really sore or uh, I would have a lot of lower back pain. And there was one morning where I couldn't move and I was literally in bed and said, okay, I have a two-year-old in the other room who is asleep right now. And if he needs me right now, I actually can't move to help him. I had to phone a friend to break into my house to help me out of bed and get me the care I needed uh, so I could get out of bed. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, that's not why I had my first child. So I, I decided that my journey would end there and I would be thankful for him. And we're an awesome team. We do lots together. I pick him up and he comes with me and we do whatever we do together and we're a good team. Thank you for sharing it. And it sounds like you're really good at kind of listening to outside influences um, to determine your pathway. That is a brilliant story. It's completely inspiring. I'm sure 
anyone listening to this with um, a hope to have children either with a partner or without a partner can draw some strength from what you've shared today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Helen. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. 